Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 63, Hepburn vs. Hepburn, round three. Stay alive. Stay alive. Um, there's a reason we're podcasters and not professional Broadway performers, Jonathan. <laughs> and do you know what why that is? Because we cannot sing. Uh, I was going to say because we didn't grow up in New York or uh, and I wasn't involved in theater, but also, yes, because we can't sing. Um, that is that, that's important. That's an important part of it. And we know a lot more about movies than musicals. So. We do. We do. There's something that appeals to me about the uh, immortalization of a permanently captured moment in film over the uh, spontaneity of an ephemeral moment in theater not to say that one is necessarily has any more intrinsic value than the other just that subjectively i like one more than the other but that's not really what we're talking about today really what we're talking about today for like the third time on the podcast is are the hepburns our favorite leading ladies uh from film history and as always i am hashtag team catherine and jonathan is hashtag uh team audrey and uh, I just want to point out before we dive in uh, to anybody out there who is new to using the hashtag Team Catherine hashtag um, that Catherine is spelled with two A's, uh, not an E after the TH. So just just reminding you out there, uh, all of our Team Catherineites um, out there to remember to spell her name correctly as we go forward. So thank you very much for that. Uh, and turning our mat- our attention towards the films today, Jonathan, what are we talking about? Today, we are starting off with The African Queen from 1951, directed by John Huston, starring the one and only Katharine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart. Uh, at the Oscars, this film won for Best Actor, uh, was nominated for Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Writing. And then we'll be talking about Charade from 1963, starring Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, another fan favorite of the filming show. Um, I was thinking about it. Cary Grant may be our leading uh, actor as far as number of times he has appeared. Also, uh, yeah, he's just he's just in everything. That's kind yeah. of his thing. Like, that's kind of his deal. And it's one of those things you don't notice when you're first getting into uh, classic film. But as you watch more and more of them, uh, he will just uh, pop up. He'll pop up in all of them. Um, and, and I've noticed... Not- not something to complain about ever. <laughs> no, no, he's great. He's a very distinctive actor. Um, he he seems to have, for people who haven't seen a lot of his performances, um, his signature accent almost almost seems uh, one note or like a one trick pony, but it's really not. It's very, it ends up being very versatile. He can bend his like signature charisma to uh, a lot of different kinds of roles and very strong roles to uh, lend a lot to movies. Um, and, and I've noticed that as his uh, statistics have gone up in my letterboxed and analysis statistics page. Um, and for those of you who want to follow us on Letterboxd, go ahead and do that. Uh, just plugging ourselves. You know how we do. <laughs> anyway, Charade uh, stars Audrey Hepburn as well, and she's the focus of our episode today. It is directed, or was directed, by one Stanley Donan. Um and it was nominated at the Oscars for Best Original Song, and that sh- song was also named Charade. 
Indeed it was. Uh, so yeah, two great films, two great leading actresses, and two great leading actors. Shall we get into it? Certainly. Okay, on to our first film of the day, The African Queen from 1951. And this is a film about a boat uh, named The African Queen, um, which is kind of just our setting for the majority of the film, or at least, you know, the important middle bit of the film. Yeah, um, kind of bringing it back to, like, Lifeboat and other bottle episodes that we've done. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, it takes place in Africa um, along, uh, I feel like I should know the name of the river, but I don't, um, but that's okay. It's around, it's in East Africa, it's near Kenya and Uganda and Rwanda, that area, If uh, for those of you familiar with the geography of Africa. Um, and it, it, it starts off with these two missionaries, a brother and a sister. Uh, these are the Sayer siblings. Uh, Catherine Hepburn's name is Rose, and uh, her brother, played by Robert Morley, is the Reverend Samuel Sayer. And they are uh, uh, missionaries out here in the um, less uh, populated areas of Africa. Kind of during the early 19th century, I or during the early 20th century. I, I still can't tell whether or not this uh, movie is set during the First or Second World War. Oh, I can confirm right now. This movie is set during the First World War. Um, so the early, early uh, 20th century uh, Africa missionaries out in Africa uh, doing their thing uh, with a local village. Uh and they, ha they have their mail and uh, packages and supplies regularly delivered to them by one Charlie Allnut, which is a wonderful name, Allnut, <laughs> um, played by Humphrey Bogart, originally meant to be a uh, Cockney character. Uh, Humphrey Bogart couldn't do a Cockney accent for an entire movie, so it was changed to a Canadian, uh, and hence we have Humphrey Bogart in this film as well. And they they kind of they kind of the the missionaries kind of look down on the rougher ways of this um, male boatman, um, ferryman, if you will, running around the river. Uh, he's dirty, and they try to they stay as clean as they can uh, out here in uh, in the less populated areas of Africa. And the movie really gets kicked off when news arrives that war has been declared between Britain and Germany. And the missionary village is deserted except for um, Catherine Hepburn and her brother who well, stay behind. it's actually behind. kind of raised, but that's It okay. is eventually, yeah, no, it <laughs> eventually is raised. Like, they stay behind, they choose to stay behind, and then it is raised by German soldiers who uh, come along and beat up Catherine Hepburn's brother, who uh, then takes ill, has a fever, and dies. Uh, Humphrey Bogart character returns and uh, helps her bury her brother and then they decide to leave because why the hell would they stay here um, so they leave and uh, Humphrey Bogart's character is mostly interested in just leaving and uh, Catherine Hepburn's character is mostly interested in turning the boat, the African Queen into a live torpedo and sinking the German gunboat that is guarding the river downstream that blocks their exit um so she kind of has like this revenge patriotism thing going on and Humphrey Bogart starts off kind of more or less out for himself. Um, and of course they go through a series of triple uh, trials and tribulations as they go down the river, which is a really great metaphor for plot, especially in the second act. So if you're studying how to structure a second act, check out this movie. It does a really good job of it. Um, 
as they go past a German fort and a series of rapids and the boat takes on damage and uh, more and more damage as they go down the river and the relationship between the two uh, develops first into a friendship and then into something more than a friendship as uh, they proceed down the river and are uh, essentially put through the shit together, which in my opinion has always been a good way to develop a friendship with the person. Um, and eventually they make their way to, uh, to the, uh, the lake, which is guarded by this gunboat and they, they finally make it their way onto the lake. And I won't spoil how it ends cause, uh, it's still fairly early in this episode of the filmings. And even though we're terrible at keeping our promise and not <laughs> spoiling things, uh, I want to wait at least past like, you know, the 10 minute mark to, uh, just spoil the crap out of it. But, you know, uh, suffice to say it is a golden era, uh, film from the height of the studio system. So it ends about the way you would suspect it to end. But the director, John Houston, who is, uh, a bit of, um, an outsider in the world of Hollywood, especially at this point in his career, uh, kind of takes it through some unique twists and turns, which makes it memorable and uh, is one of the things that helps it get up there on the AFI Top 100 list. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what What a better way to showcase two giant Hollywood stars than to stick them in a tiny little boat and just throw uh, the worst that the nature of Africa can at them. And that's exactly what we get to do. We just get to follow these two characters uh, going from these distant strangers from two different kind of social classes. And then as they form bonds and have to help each other and uh, and get through all of these things and just survive together. And it's really, uh, really great character study in that respect. Yeah, and they both get something that they need from the other character, which is just good writing. Um, yeah, classic opposite attracts kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as Catherine Hepburn's character learns to loosen up, at first she does it maybe too much as she goes on her crazy revenge bit, um, but she learns to loosen up, and then uh, Humphrey Bogart's character um, learns to develop a sense of attachment, um, which you can derive from the fact that he's a single man running a boat around Africa at the start of this film <laughs> that he wasn't really attached to much. Um, a sense of attachment as well as, as a sense of responsibility, um, not only to his, um, his love interest throughout the film, Catherine Hepburn, but also uh, to his country and at this point his, you know, his queen. Uh, they're part of the, Canada is still part of the, the Dominion. Um, to, uh, you know, have a little bit more of a patriotic bent towards the end, which he's kind of lacking towards the beginning. Um, which brings me around to part of the, uh, the, the very interesting production, uh, facts and, uh, stories that we can talk about in regards to this film. Uh, and, and part of it is that this is a film that came out in, oh gosh, when did it come out, Jonathan? It came out in 1951. Uh, yeah, this is a film that came out in 1951, uh, which is, uh, for those of you who don't know, right around the time of the McCarthy era. Um, and most significantly about that, The Blacklist in Hollywood, uh, which is a series of events which culminated in, uh, I think, about 12 various writers, directors, and other people being uh, blacklisted from Hollywood um, by the House of Un-American Activities committee in uh in congress which was uh led by 
or maybe it was in the run up to Senator McCarthy. Anyway, the point is there was a bit of a witch hunt going on at the time for suspected communists and a bunch of people got pushed out of the industry. And a lot, uh, one of the things that happened during part of that was a lot of major stars, uh, both directors, writers, actors, actresses, um, were going to go to New York to show their support. And some of the people who did that were Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn, and John Huston, who directed this film. Um, and uh, afterwards, they thought they were just supporting their uh, their fellow uh, their their fellow coworkers and colleagues through a uh, a rough spot with the government. But it turns out that it put a tar- bit of a target on all of their backs. And even though it wasn't as strong as the people who were directly targeted by the blacklist and HUAC, um, a lot of uh, these uh, these people who went to go support them kind of backtracked a bit. Uh, and, and did a lot of projects that supported patriotism and traditional values um, and the allies from World War II, especially the non-Russian allies from World War II, um, hence the African Queen. So this was a movie that was done uh, partially to get back in the good graces of people like HUAC and the, uh, the studio heads in Hollywood who were scared of people who were being targeted by HUAC at the time. And hence we have a lot of themes of... Um, you know, faith and traditional uh, patriotism and stuff of that sort seen throughout the movie, as well as an interesting story to kind of lend to the start of, of the making of this movie. And if you want to hear more about that, uh, go check out the You Must Remember This podcast episode number 74, uh, episode four of the Blacklist series itself, The African Queen, Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn, and John Huston, which goes into much more depth and the juicy, juicy details of uh, that story in particular. Yeah, but once we get into the film itself, once it does start uh, getting made, um, there were a lot of uh, of things that went on like during the actual production of the film because this film was actually shot uh, on location in Africa for a large part of it. Not everything. Uh, a lot of the things are you know very dangerous, like pushing a little uh, river steamboat down Whitewater Rapids and all that kind of stuff. Um, Which is actually, but, by the way, it's not even a real boat. It's a raft with a boat construct on top of it. Oh, really? So that they could take away parts of the boat and uh, to, to get the giant Technicolor cameras in there. This is like the boat version of a uh, of a cardboard cutout western town. Essentially, essentially, that's what's going on there. Yeah, but there were a lot of sections that actually were shot on location, which, like you're saying, uh, they were shooting this film in Technicolor. This is the first color film that we've done on the podcast with Catherine Hepburn. Um, and when Technicolor was was first uh, getting off the ground, those cameras were huge. So shooting on location, uh, especially in a country like Africa, was not an easy task and was not uh, a common thing. And uh, as you can imagine, it came with all sorts of its own complications, i.e. Uh, fake uh, riverboats getting thrown down the rapids. Yeah, yeah. Apparently the boiler on the boat almost fell on Catherine Hepburn like it was a near miss at one point, And that would have been pretty bad. Um, the, like nearly the whole crew and the entirety of the cast got sick. Um, even there's there's one part early in the film where Catherine Hepburn is playing an organ, uh, and uh, the rumor is, or and I think it might have been confirmed in her own biography, autobiography. But she uh, she had a bucket next to her on set while she was shooting the scene so that she could shoot as much of the scene as possible and then pause to vomit into the bucket and then resume playing. Um, Humphrey Bogart would go on to brag later on 
that he and John Huston were the only ones uh, not to get sick during the shooting of the film, and that was because <laughs> they didn't drink the local water. They only drank like the the whiskey that they brought along with them. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and uh, I guess kind of semi-related, but getting back into like a, a specific part of the film, um, there was a scene at the very beginning where uh, Humphrey Bogart has dinner with Catherine and her brother, and they're both... Um, you know, missionaries and very uh, prim and proper representatives of the church. And then Humphrey Bogart is the the gruff, rough and tough guy who uh, sits down, is kind of eating and trying to be proper and everything. But his stomach starts uh, gurgling and doing all of these, uh, uh, you know, making all these noises. And it reminded me of the scene from Modern Times uh, where... Um, uh, Charlie Chaplin is sitting down next to the... Uh, uh, the pastor's wife and they're drinking tea and both of their stomachs start gurgling and they just kind of have this whole scene with looks uh, between each other, which I think we we uh, discovered was one of like the first flatulence jokes uh, ever in film. And that scene in this movie kind of uh, is almost like a culmination of that many, many years later. Yes. And uh, another one, one last fun fact before I really dive into um, Catherine Hepburn's uh, acting and performance in this, this film. Um, and that is about London's feral ringneck parakeet population. Um, <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. 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 It's really, it's not like a long story. There's not a lot of details about specifically how it happened, but there it's are just some, so bizarre. Yeah. There are some zoologists who have kind of come along and given uh, some significant credence um, to the story, um, apparently one zoologist whose parents used to feed the ringneck parakeets when they were a child. Um, but it is highly, it, it, it's both a rumor and there's a lot of credit to that rumor that, um, the, the population of ringneck parakeets, uh, that now exists in London and has existed for, existed for some time. Uh, is because they were accidentally released or escaped from the shooting of this film, which shot all of its on-set uh, scenes in um, a studio that was in uh, London, England. And the parakeet, for those of you who don't know, is not a bird that is native to London. Um, <laughs> but it So if is... you were wondering how cinema affects ecology, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So, But, but it is now because probably well probably because of this movie so if you've ever wondered why if you've ever been in london and you've been looking at a ringneck parakeet and you've been wondering to yourself why is a parakeet in london well you could just have to thank Catherine hepburn and humphrey bogart <laughs> um but yes that's the, there's those and many more interesting facts about this movie um i hope all of you enjoyed the trivia that i ran on uh, my page the past couple weeks. It was just kind of an idea. Please let me know what you think about it. Uh, if, if you have a moment, we would love to keep doing that sort of thing um, to keep you guys entertained in between episodes. Um, but before we move on from this movie, we have to talk about Katherine Hepburn's um, performance in this film. And the first and foremost thing that I have to talk about um, and it's not a bad thing. It's not a stigmatized thing. It's just the fact that Catherine Hepburn is kind of over the hill in this movie. She is uh, past her um, young starlet phase for sure. She's playing an old spinster in this film. She's not quite as old as her character in this film, 
But she would go on in the next coming decades after this to play many, many older films. And her her career wouldn't really fade until, like, the late 80s. Um, so uh, she, she plays a much more mature character. She's much older, but she's just as commanding, um, just as romantic, um, just as charming, just as signature, um, charismatic Catherine Hepburn as she was in her past roles, just with an older, more interesting spin on her that you didn't typically see uh, in a lot of uh, studio-era films that didn't focus on uh, older women as leading love interests, which I both find fascinating and highly rewarding to see one of my favorite actresses in that role. Um, Not only because it is a unique performance in its own right, but also because it means that uh, her establishing herself as an older actress, which is something that is next to unheard of in um, uh, studio Hollywood, uh, transition from a young starlet to a successful older actress, uh, meant that she nearly doubled her career length of successful films that we can still enjoy to this day. Yeah, especially after being blacklisted. Um, well, but not, it's also not in- really fully blacklisted, more of like threatened. Well, yeah. But but still, there was there was a stigma there, and we we talked about the whole box office poison bit. Um, but it's interesting to see her character transition uh, through the three films that we've talked about in this series um, with Catherine Hepburn, starting with Bringing Up Baby, where she is just the full on whirlwind of comedy, uh, to the Philadelphia Story, which is still a comedic film, but in which she is. Um, for the most part, one of the the less comedic aspects because she's uh, she's got this very dramatic uh, character arc that she has to go on uh, into this film where she starts off as the very uh, stoic and prim and proper character and then has to literally get her hands dirty in a lot of uh, different situations and learn to relax and trust this man that she knows very, very little about. Um, and so it's kind of these three films are kind of an epitome uh, maturing process in a sense, um, especially for uh, just seeing how her character evolves with her age and how she's able to take her technique and her talent and adapt it for so many different types of roles and how she just nails each one of them. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes my team Catherine Hart happy to see her um, thrive throughout all of her career and play like a wide range of roles, um, uh, certainly a wider range of roles than most actors ever get the chance to play in their lives. Right. Um, and she has the talent for each of them. So always fascinating to watch. I love to watch her and, uh, I'll probably keep watching Catherine Hepburn movies for well ever. So <laughs> yeah. So. Cause I mean, she's still comedic in the African queen, but if she brought the same, kind of comedy that she brings in bringing up baby uh the movie would be completely different yeah Um, yeah yeah. and i so i and i even watched on golden pond this week which is over 30 years after the african queen and it is still she's still sparkling and alive is that her last film that's one of her last films it's one of her last films it's the last film she wins an oscar for Um, okay but she's still crackling and alive and just as charismatic as she was in any other movie um, it was Henry Fonda's last film, though, um, and his his daughter Jane Fonda is in it as well. So that's a fascinating movie to check out in its own right. Do recommend it. But uh, now is not the time for Golden on Golden Pond. 
Now is the time for Charade. All right, Charade, uh, one of my favorite movies. This movie comes out in 1963. I'm going to try and skim the plot because uh, if you were concerned about uh, spoilers, Alex, I am walking on a minefield here. So the the basic premise of Charade is Audrey Hepburn's character, Regina Lampert, um, uh, we get introduced to her and we find out that she's unhappy in her marriage and she's planning to get a divorce from her husband because he's keeping so many secrets from her and she doesn't know if she can trust him. And then we find out in the next scene that he's actually dead and uh, he had stolen a bunch of money during World War II and a bunch of his uh, war buddies that he stole the money with are now coming after her because she thinks that he has the money that he stole from them that they all stole from the Germans. Uh, and that's not even the most complicated part because she also runs into Cary Grant's character, uh, Peter Joshua, and um, kind of gets tangled up in him. He's kind of tangled up on all sides with, with everybody. Uh, but through this, uh, and then Walter, Walter Matthau is thrown in there also as, um, a CIA operative. And, uh, there's, there's so many angles going on that makes this just like a, a great spy thriller, but it's also a great comedy. And one of the things that I love about this movie is the way that it can switch on a dime from being like, full-on rom-com to uh, full-on Hitchcock suspense film. Uh, and it's kind of amazing in the way that it's able to do that. Kind of like what we talked about uh, with The 39 Steps, where you have screwball comedy meets, um, like, with with really high stakes, like death as the stakes. Um, but it's still uh, two characters, man and woman, going through this adventure and falling in love in the process. Yeah, no, it is it is full of twists and turns. It is, whew, it's something. It's very, um, and the thing I always, I, I continue to think every time I watch this movie is just how um, Hitchcockian it is in terms of plot. It's so Hitchcockian. And like avant-garde, very dramatic style um, in the terms of like that 40s, 50s thing that Hitchcock had going on and even early 60s um, that we talked about so much and how it influenced like the... Um, the, the, the French new wave yeah. artists and so on. And those techniques, those uh, theories and those styles are on full display in this film in terms of like the bright colors, the technicolor, the dramatic the shadows, looks, the shadows, every, the way characters are introduced. Um, the Cary Grant. Yeah. The Cary, there's <laughs> Cary Grant in it. That makes it Hitchcockian, right? Um, almost. Almost. You're right. Yeah. But it's just, it's, it's so well done and it's so it's so much fun. Like you can tell uh, that, you know, Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn are having a really good time doing this. Um, and you can tell that Stanley Donan uh, has a real love for Hitchcock in that type of film. Um, you know, Cary Grant came off of uh, uh, North by Northwest not too long before this film came out. And this film is very north by northwest-ish with uh um audrey hepburn being the wrong woman if you will and i'm gonna pull out all the stops from our hitchcock uh series because why do we do a hitchcock series if we can't bring it up when we talk about charade <laughs> yeah why um, did we do, why why didn't we do <laughs> what other reason did we do a five-week hitchcock series for if not in prep for this this week's episode this this film right here 
kind of the only Hitchcock trope that this film is missing is uh, a blonde, honestly. I feel like there's a blonde in there somewhere. Maybe not a main character, but there's got to be a blonde person. A blonde yeah, woman there, in there somewhere. Yeah, there probably is. Um, there you go. Yeah. There's your task for the week, people. Go scan the background extras for a blonde woman. Send us a screen cap. First one gets, uh, I don't know, a, a Twitter shout out. A, uh, <laughs> a sense of accomplishment. There you go. Um, but yeah, one of the other things that this film does really well and that it needs to do really well because, again, the plot is so complicated is the way that it reveals information. And it's constantly revealing new information and refuting old information that it's already given us. And so it's really important that we are both interested in the information that is being revealed and that we're not getting completely lost Um because there are so many twists and turns. And uh, one, one of my favorite things, one of the, the greatest scenes is the very beginning scene when they're at um, uh, Audrey Hepburn's husband's funeral and we get introduced to all the bad guys and they all walk in and they do some form of testing, but in their own very specific way. Uh, you know, the really mean guy comes in and he sticks him with a pin. And uh, James Coburn, who we saw in The Magnificent Seven, uh, comes in and puts a mirror up to his up to his nose and talks to Audrey Hepburn in his uh, southern draw. And um, and the the I don't know, the the bald kind of uh Peter Laurie-ish character comes in and just has this like weird sneezing fit because he's so strange. Um, but just by going through all that, we don't even know who they are, but we kind of get a sense of how they're going to play into this. And then when we find out that they're all working together, it's like, okay, now it's kind of a force to be reckoned with. Um, and then we get to, uh, to Walter Matthau who goes through the, the exposition scene, but, We've we've got a context for all of the uh, the characters that he starts referencing when he brings out all the photographs and uh, and just kind of talks us through each of the characters. Um, so there's there's just a lot of different ways that uh, the information reveal works, and one of them is the information receiver, which is usually Audrey Hepburn as she has to kind of figure out what is going on. And her role in this is so great because she is at once um, terrified and utterly charming in every scene that she is in. And she can go from uh, being completely interested to just being completely distracted. So like in the in, in the Walter Matthau scene, he's he's explaining stuff to her and uh, and asks her if she wants a sandwich. And she's like, no. And then once things get tense. He st- she stops him and goes, can I have a sandwich, actually? Uh, and so you get little bits of humor thrown in with all of the suspense. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know why this suddenly reminds me of this other movie, but it reminds me of um, the Lady Killers in the, the way... In the way this this team the of Coen people Brothers Lady of, Killers, no, no, the old version with um, oh, okay. Michael Caine, yeah. Where in the way this um, this group of people is kind of like thrown together, and they're a little incompetent, and they're very amusing to watch. But the take on this one is definitely um, drama thriller rather than comedy. In the Lady Killers, um, not to say that either one is less fun to watch because they're both very fun to watch. I mean, just the style and panache, which whenever we're talking about Audrey Hepburn, of course we have to talk about style. I mean, she just brings ooze, yeah. gobs of it to everything she's in. Um, 
you know, the just the sheer amount of style is perfect for this movie. It it makes it entertaining, it makes it fun, it makes it go down easy, keeps your eyes on the screen, which is perfect. That's what you want for a film. And of course, you know, to to extrapolate from what I just said, the casting of Audrey Hepburn is perfect. She is fits in this role absolutely perfectly. Um, the way she can like just in- incarnate innocence within herself in like every film she's in, regardless of you know the truth behind <laughs> her character, is yeah. perfect. The way she can pull off style and confusion um, and some some. Uh, it's deeply hidden, but you can tell there's this uh, whip smart intelligence deep within each of her characters, and uh, it only shows to the people around her and the audience in very particular moments, and it's very, very, very well done. I don't know if it's necessarily intentional or if it's just part of her natural charisma, but it, it just works. It works very well. Yeah, and it actually comes to play a part in this film when she starts uh, spying in her own turn on Cary Grant, and uh, she remarks to Walter Matthau that women make the best uh, spies slash agents, um, and she gets to kind of like she has this pride in herself of like how good she is at, at pulling tricks and being sneaky and uh, and all this stuff, and that's that's one of the great things is um, her dynamic with uh, with Cary Grant as she flip-flops between trusting and not trusting him over and over and over again through the course of this film um as new information is revealed to her she will literally go from uh like sitting in his lap and kissing all over his face to being stone cold towards him uh for the entire next scene because she just learned something else but she's able to do it because you can see uh her thinking and her emotions on her face and she's uh, she just embodies that that elegance but she can also bring it to uh, a more serious film like this yeah and there's just like interesting thing she does where her voice is um just completely high but that highness can either be the high pitch can either be complete innocence or um complete seriousness or complete um uh you know complete seductiveness depending on what scene we're in and but it's never dotty. Like sometimes you no, think of a, of a high voice for a woman as like, uh, you know, blonde or unintelligent or whatever. She has that high voice, but it always has purpose behind it. It almost lowers the audience's defenses um, to prepare them for the fo- full on emotional on- onslaught of her acting, which is great. I mean, bravo. That is great for what, uh, what you want to do as an actor to make the audience uh, feel and follow and feel empathy with you as a character. Yeah. And, uh, talking about the dynamic between Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, we have to talk about the age difference, um, which really does not come across on screen. Like they, you just kind of believe them and love watching them, but they are actually 25 years, uh, difference. Cary Grant being the older, obviously. And Cary Grant actually had a problem with this. He had a problem with it for a while because he turned down the leading role man on uh, both Roman Holiday and Sabrina, which are two of Audrey Hepburn's early hits. And he had huge objections to their age difference. He didn't want people to think of her, think of him as a cradle robber or whatever. So parts of the script were actually rewritten to make Audrey uh, Audrey Hepburn's character, the pursuing character, where she is constantly trying to uh, get him to be in love with her as opposed to the other way around. Um, Which makes for a slightly more interesting script, I must say. 
Which does. It does. And it fits Audrey Hepburn's character because she almost turns into, uh, you know, like <laughs> to keep it in the series. She kind of turns into Catherine Hepburn's character from Bringing Up Baby, where she's chasing Cary Grant and Cary Grant is just trying to Oh, yeah, no, keep we got up. a Cary Grant movie with both of them. Oh, yeah, We do. We got them both. He's making the rounds. I'm telling you, he's all he's over this podcast. He's everything. But, but yeah, it's, it's – uh, and it's not that he is – um, there are times when he kind of distances himself from her, and, and we understand that, especially by the end, uh, even though they do end up together. Spoiler alert. I can spoil that much. Um, and uh, But it does it does kind of help, and I think that it may have felt a little different and would have been a little bit more creepy. And honestly, I don't understand how it would really work, given the characters, if Cary Grant was the pursuer in the relationship. It would have made uh, him, like, really, really evil. Like, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. like he's manipulative he's not, and yeah, I mean, he, he's not a squeaky clean character by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Uh, nobody's a squeaky clean character in this movie. And that's just part of what makes it uh, interesting. But if he had been the pursuer as well and been like this really sexually aggressive man, it would it I mean, it, it would uh, have made him vi- very hard to be sympathetic with. Yeah, I think regardless of the age difference, just like you're saying, given the characters, it would have been a completely different movie and you would not have felt as uh, happy about the ending yeah. as you do. It puts it puts some of the power back uh, with Audrey Hepburn's character and that power balance is kind of um, important to a film so that you don't feel, uh, you know, you feel like both characters are actually acting in it, like they, they have... Um, agency and that um, you don't feel too much sympathy towards either one or too much um, or don't feel enough towards another. Right, right. And uh, uh, a couple other little tidbits about the movie. Uh, Alex, did you catch the My Fair Lady reference uh, in the film? Uh, I might have, but I think I've forgotten. <laughs> Jonathan, a- what is the My Lady reference, My Fair Lady reference in this film? <laughs> <laughs> There's a moment when uh, when they're walking up to Audrey Hepburn's hotel room and uh, Cary Grant says, we're here. And she says, where? And he says, on the street where you live. And it's just like a little wink and a nod. And another fun tidbit, uh, if you would like to know more details about this, since we're talking about the plot more vaguely, is that uh, you can watch this whenever you want to because it is in the public domain due to a kind of... Uh, freak legality thing uh when the film was released the uh copyright statement legality (laughs) the copyright statement on the film did not include uh any uh word or abbreviation or symbol for copyright and uh so it it just went into public domain as soon as it was released uh because of the way that the copyright laws worked when the film was released so uh i'll include a link to it on the internet archive uh, in the blog post and uh, have at it. It's kind of just the little bonus about this movie. It's like it's such a good movie and then for one little technicality to just make it uh, available to the world is so uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny how that s- stuff works out. It's always a um, it's always a weird path for films to get through you, especially to the uh, viewer, especially when you... Um, extrapolate that out over this, the course of decades um, which work cool with it makes for interesting stories and heck yeah, yeah put more films in the public domain <laughs> I want to watch them um, yeah we've talked about film preservation before but I don't think we've talked about uh, film unprotection before or however you would classify that 
Yeah, yeah. Making films readily available, either in affordable cost or no cost to the public, especially to the just oodles and gobs of people who are aspiring to make uh, similar content, whether it be actual films or less uh, uh, shorter content videos, you know, yada, yada, yada. But I think, you know, one of our... Uh, one of our tenets, even though we don't have those, we don't like list them anywhere. Uh, maybe we should. As the filmlings, <laughs> is um, that watching movies is one of the best ways to learn about movies and learn how to make your own movies better. Um, you you see how to do things, you hear how to write things, you see how to direct things, light things, uh, move things, move the audience. What makes you feel certain ways? Even just getting down to the fact of having a. Um, a diverse amount of um, content and uh, creative people behind that content who make things in different ways to show you uh, and teach you, give you different perspectives, different ways to do it, and ultimately to learn what you like to do in your own right as a creative person, um, to tell your own story in your own way, in the way that you want to, um, which honestly will probably be a mix of all of the things that you've seen. Uh, because if you hadn't seen anything, you probably wouldn't be able to make anything. Even the famously isolated um, uh, filmmakers that we talk about, like Tarkovsky, have seen something, or they yeah. wouldn't have anywhere to go off of to begin with. Um, not to say that complete originality is impossible, it's just that everything comes from something. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even like we talked about a couple a couple episodes ago, uh, even if it's just picking a movie that you really like, like Orson Welles did with Stagecoach and just watching it over and over and over again. So it really seeps into you and you can really figure out how it works. Um, you know, if you're having trouble accessing movies, this is a good one. It's free and uh, it's available. And if you want to know how to make Hitchcockian movies, learn from someone who made a Hitchcockian movie. This film is actually often referred to as the best film that Hitchcock never made, which uh, I cannot refute at all. Like it makes sense, right? <laughs> it's uh, it's perfect. Um, but this film was actually remade at some point by uh, Jonathan Demme, who uh, directed Silence of the Lambs. Uh, is called The Truth About Charlie, and from everything I can tell, it's not very good. But it is a fun fact. Uh, it stars Mark Wahlberg, too, and I cannot see Mark Wahlberg replacing Cary Grant it stars uh, Mark in anything. Mark? <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, in 2002. Look, I'm as much of a Marky Mark fan as anybody else, but he doesn't hold a candle to Cary Grant. Yeah, no. Um, so there you go. Fun fact about the longevity of Charade. It's actually surprising that it hasn't been remade more than that. Right? Uh, although, I, I, it's not like I'm, I'm supporting remakes. I don't want this to come off as me being like, remake all the things, because I don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah, um, it's just based on understanding of how Hollywood works. You'd think... There will always be remakes. <laughs> there will always be remakes. There will always be infinite remakes. Well, yeah, as we uh, move into the overall notes of this episode, and I guess overall notes for this whole series also, um, as we finish up our talk and comparison, but not really comparison, just two separate uh, gushings over Hepburns. Um, it was really interesting to see these two wonderfully talented actresses that share a last name and how um, they're able to bring uh, a very different style and a very different personality uh, to so many different kinds of films. Like they're both so good at what they do, but they don't they don't have the same 
um, appeal necessarily in all the same circumstances, but they bring their own personal appeal to each of their projects with such force that they just cannot be ignored uh, in film history. Right, right. And by the way, real quick, because this just popped into my head, I just remembered it. Um, just for those of you who are wondering where the Catherine fee, Catherine, uh, not really a beef, beef came from between me and Hepburn Jonathan. versus Hepburn. You said Hepburn. Catherine versus Catherine. Oh well, uh, I'm biased. So um, <laughs> clearly, Hepburn versus Hepburn beef came from. Uh, it goes back to me not knowing whether or not the two are related. Like this predates the filmings. Um, so yeah, over over a year and a half ago, um, I was trying to figure out whether or not the two were related. Uh, and I did like uh, I spent hours and hours trying to figure out whether or not there was a relation, and I couldn't find anything to confirm it. And it still stands that they're not related. Uh, maybe <laughs> if you go way, way far back, they were. In fact, yeah. you know, probably every human is. But they both um, have uh, European nobility in their blood. Yeah, but that's not, about the closest yeah. you can get. <laughs> they're not related in any kind of meaningful way. So. Right. So that happened, and I was texting Jonathan about this because we're both film nerds, and we're the biggest film nerds that we know. So uh, we text about this stuff, and th that turned into me, I think, saying something along the lines of, "At least we know who the best cat, uh, who the best Hepburn is." And Jonathan was right, we do. And I was like, "Catherine," and Jonathan was like, "No, no, 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 no. <laughs> Wait, I think you mean Audrey, and hence Hepburn v. Hepburn." And of course. I think, as we've established and repeated to the point where we're probably sick of saying it, they're both great. We don't they're have anything great. against the other one. We just love our own Hepburn better than the other Hepburn, and that's okay. Um, and speaking of my own Hepburn, I want to talk today about uh, the second half of Catherine Hepburn's career. This is the first movie that, in fact, I might even say that this movie kind of draws the line between the first half and the second half of Catherine Hepburn's career. Um, in the 30s and the 40s, she was kind of a young starlet. She was in her 20s and her 30s, and then she kind of crosses the line to being in her 40s, um, and up and up and up, and she was making movies into her 80s. Um, but her, the second half of her career was even more successful than the first half of her career, um, which is shocking because until fairly recently, and still not entirely tr uh, true for everybody, being an aging actress wasn't really a very successful vocation. A lot of starlets would reach a certain age and kind of fall off the map. Uh, they would get married. They would move into a different line of work. Um, a lot of them tragically um, would end up dying in some way. See, the You Must Remember the series on Dead Blondes in Hollywood. Um, but it was very, very rare for somebody to do what Catherine Hepburn did, which is transition successfully from being a young a uh, young starring lead female actress into being a middle-aged and then elderly uh, starring lead female actress, which is brilliant. In fact, she wins. She won four Oscars throughout her career. One she won for her third movie ever in like 1933, Morning Glory. Um, the other three she wins in the later half of her career after she's 60 or so, uh, the first of which or the second Oscar overall, the first of which when she's older is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. The last one is On Golden Pond. And I don't remember which one is in the middle. But, of course, there's a bunch of really significant, really important performances in there, including uh, The Lion and Winter, in which she plays her own relative, her own great times 26 grandmother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, 
in which she just becomes a better and better actress as she ages and continues a really strong career late in life until, uh, I mean, she's even making like TV movies, you know, not very good ones because it's like the 90s, but whatever. Um, pretty close until she finally passes away, sadly, uh, on this side of the millennial line even. Um, and I just think that's incredible. And, you know, the past couple of weeks while we've been prepping for this episode, I've watched through a lot of Catherine Hepburn canon, some early films, but a lot of which are her older films. And I can't recommend them highly enough um, to go check out some of those older ones, especially, you know, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Lion and the Winter, um, Aunt Golden Pond, which is also Henry Fonda's last film. I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, all really great films from an actress who didn't lose a step as she got older and just kept getting better and better. Yeah, and to bring in uh, the kind of tail end of Audrey Hepburn's career, um, since we are wrapping up the series, uh, this is not the the end of Hepburn's career either. She goes on to do um, several other notable projects. Um, you know, we already talked about My Fair Lady, which comes out the next year after Charade. Um also, How to Steal a Million, Wait Until Dark, and a couple others. Uh, we actually talked about her final film in the first episode of this podcast, and that was always directed by uh, Steven Spielberg, um, where she literally plays an angel. What a more fitting uh, way to end your um, Hollywood career. Yeah, and if but, you're wondering whether or not we <laughs> fired shots at each other about the Hepburn versus Hepburn thing during the making of that first episode, we did. <laughs> yeah, we did. I can't remember if any of them made it to the podcast, but uh, probably not. Go, go check it out anyway. While we were um, still trying to figure out how to podcast. Yeah, while we're <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, how do I talk? Right. Yep. Good times. Um, Good times. We still have trouble talking. Don't don't. Yeah, that don't never goes like away. We don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, Even voice yeah. actors have multiple takes, guys. Yeah, but towards the end of. Um, Audrey Hepburn's acting career, uh, she starts doing more um, more charity work, and she does a lot of work for UNICEF and actually uh, receives the um, Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, to recognize that, and she has like a statue at UNICEF and stuff like that. So that's something that we don't talk about a whole lot is, um, is actors' activity outside of their um, Hollywood career, but Audrey Hepburn definitely had a, uh, a notable one. Um, and also, as long as uh, we've already acknowledged our semi uh, kind of uh, journey through Cary Grant's career, this is kind of Cary Grant's last notable role. He does two more films after this, but this is really his um, uh, kind of his last hurrah. And I I kind of think about um, I actually found an article that that discusses this to some extent. The fact that charade is can almost be considered uh, like the end of the, the golden age of Hollywood. We have these two actors um, and the whole cast of, uh, of like bad guys and stuff. I mean, you've got a ton of these actors that worked all through the golden age. And as we come to uh, the African queen where uh, Catherine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart are coming back after a, a short absence from Hollywood and the next 10 years or so, the studio system is starting to collapse. And so these films and the films in between these two films 
kind of represent the end of a certain era of Hollywood. And then over the next uh, decade or two after Charade, we start seeing the rise of blockbusters and the American new wave of film. Um, And so as we kind of end this series, it's also an interesting look at the end of a whole era in cinema history and seeing that with these two films that star uh, so many actors from the this this great era of film history yeah yeah totally right it is a fitting way to go out on the uh, Hepburn versus Hepburn series which has been a joy to do uh, and a joy to talk about uh, two of our favorite actresses for hours on end um, <laughs> such a long time guys um, go check but, out our first two obviously you're probably a little bit lost if you haven't yet yeah of course of course go check out those ones uh, we, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoy Hepper movies as much as we do. And we hope, hope you continue uh, to enjoy classic films in general, uh, expanding your film knowledge and coming along with us as we continue to journey down the path of studying movies because it's fun and we're movie nerds. Um, and what are we going to be talking about next week, Jonathan? Well, as we talk about uh, Hollywood's history, one of the things that we have to acknowledge about this current era of Hollywood is that Hollywood loves to continue things that it's already done and that people liked. And so we are going to devote a whole episode to sequel movies, um, movies that are jumping off of a first in a trilogy or more because Hollywood can't even stop at trilogies anymore. Um, and we They're have a very quadrilogies, Jonathan. <laughs> quadrilogies. Have... Yeah, that is. And then quadrilogies don't even end. It's just. Oh, we split the last book into two. Extended universes, and it just keeps going on and on and on. So we have a very interesting set of movies uh, for next time, two of which we have seen, and we decided to pick one sequel uh, to a series that neither of us have seen the first movie of. I have no idea how that's gonna go. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting because uh, next time we're going to kick off with Rambo First Blood Part 2 uh, from 1985. Neither of us have seen Rambo First Blood Part 1, so we oh. will see how well it holds up on its own. So really, isn't it at that point, once you're on Part 2, isn't that Second Blood? Second like, Blood, like yeah, at I least, don't know. At least it's Second Blood. Maybe it's like like when you take the bandaid off, but it's still it's not totally done bleeding. So. I'll take I'll take my complaint up with history, <laughs> I guess. Um, and then we're gonna follow that up with the Matrix Reloaded from two thousand three. Jonathan's the, favorite movie. Yeah, no, uh, the <laughs> less less acclaimed sequel to the Matrix, um, and finally a sequel to a film that we have covered on the podcast before, and that is The Dark Knight 2008, uh, considered one of the greatest uh, comic book films, one of the greatest films in its own right, apart from... Typically the best of the trilogy itself. Yes, often uh, the best of the trilogy. So that will be a really great one to talk about, and I'm sure that we have a lot of people who have been waiting for this. Aaron, Aaron Johnson. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron Johnson. (laughs) So that's what we've got in store for you guys next time. Somewhere, because we, we record this ahead of time, somewhere Aaron Johnson just felt a shiver go down his spine. Yeah. He, he doesn't saw, know why, but he will. <laughs> he saw a little uh, symbol in the sky with a microphone, and he knew that we were talking about Batman. <laughs> Is that how it works? That's how we get guests on our podcast? 
Yeah, I don't know. I just call That's a red Canada phone now. and That's Aaron how it picks works. up. We've got to buy a spotlight, Jonathan. Thanks for <laughs> saying that. There goes a lot of money. A spotlight and a red dial phone. Okay, guys. That's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at @jssatchel, And I'm at Alex Garinger. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. Remember to keep your waveforms healthy. Some side effects may include peaking, garbling, static, logarithmic. I don't know. I'm just flang and wah wah. Wait, was it flange? I don't know. I just edit a podcast every other week. I don't know what I'm doing. Wah.